Welcome to GVN's Talking Books interview. On today's show, we welcome actor, voiceover artist, and book narrator Vivian Laney. Vivian has worked in film, television as well as video games with voiceover work in the popular Assassin's Creed series. But she is probably best known as the narrator of over 150 different audiobooks encompassing numerous genres, including those by prolific writer Lindsay Baroker. Now, here's your host, Martin Sexton. Welcome to this special edition of GVN Talking Books. I am your host, Martin, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming one of my favorite audiobook narrators, Vivian Laney. I discovered Miss Laney's work due to her partnership with one of my favorite authors, Lindsay Baroker. It is through her talents that many of Lindsay's books come alive in audiobook form. But Vivian is not only a talented book narrator, she's also an actor with work in television and film, along with voiceover work on video games such as Assassin's Creed Unity. And if that wasn't enough, Vivian also teaches classes on narration and voiceover work to share her love of the business and hopefully groom future talent. So let's welcome the very talented Vivian Lady to GVN's Talking Books. Thanks so much for sharing a bit of your day with me this morning, Vivian. How are we doing today? Very well. Thank you, Martin. And you were well read up. <laughs> I yeah. think you gave me more credit than I deserve. But oh, I, I, I highly it. doubt it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Okay, so let's start out where all great stories <laughs> do, uh, which is the beginning. Okay, so what made you decide to consider a career in entertainment and whose work might have inspired you to consider that vocation? Uh, it felt like it wasn't so much a choice um, of mine as it kind of chose me. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, anybody who talks to, to most actors will find that um, that's the case, particularly uh, for those of us, I think, who started out maybe in stage and were theater kids in high school and, um, you know, had that sense of, of you know, coming to the works so that sort of swept us up. It wasn't so much maybe about having a, an idea of a career as just having um, this this life brewing in you and finding a group of people who share those same energies and things. So I would say that that's how um, that's how it started. But it was always in me. I mean, in the sense that I would <laughs> my poor babysitters. I was the eldest of three, and when my parents would leave, I would put on a cast album. I would sit whatever cast album, sit Partridge Family too. And then of course I would play David Cassidy because he was the lead. <laughs> so I would perform in the living room for these poor, poor babysitters. So that was maybe the, the start of it. Okay. So, uh, so when you, I say when you, so you got into acting, did you have a specific, I mean, did you want to do films? Did you want to do television, Broadway, or did you, I mean, you figured whatever opportunity came your way? Um, I think it was, I was thinking it was going to be stage, really, I thought, because it was what I was familiar with. I thought I had a big presence, a big voice. Um, I was doing a lot more singing at the time, which I'm, I'm not doing much of any longer just for myself. Um, so that's, that's where it started. And then I think somewhere I got it in my head, probably in my 20s, that as a character actress on stage, um, there probably wasn't much work for me in certainly in film and um, but then I came to that very later much later in my life in my early 40s I actually started getting hired for you know independent films shooting in the New York region and um, then working working with some very good directors and that uh, that was wonderful um, 
but you know, at a certain age, um, you look around and I see really very talented actors and I actresses that I have watched and admired coming up and you don't really hear their names very much and they don't have a good choice of roles. And that I think for me is sort of what, I'm, I may be getting ahead of your questions here, but why I kind of stepped away from acting, except when someone approached, except I consider the audiobooks acting. Um, but, uh, you know, unless someone reaches out to me, I don't, I don't go out on auditions any longer. I don't pursue that with my agents. I say, you know, if something comes up, I'm interested, we can talk about it. But mostly the roles just aren't terribly interesting. And I wasn't, so I was never very career oriented that way. Like I need to make money this way. I was always making money doing voiceover. That was sort of my bread and butter um, do, as I was acting on stage in the city, because it doesn't pay that much, you know, stage doesn't, but. Okay, so actually that's a great lead into, uh, because I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the Assassin's Creed thing, because of course, most of our <laughs> followers are very big fans of the, of the Assassin's Creed series. So how did that job come about? And is doing voiceover work for video games different than the kind of voiceover work that you might have done previously? Well, in, in truth, that's, I think, one of only, I think that's, I've only had two or three video jobs, and they've been on the smaller side, except for Assassin's Creed, which is huge, of course. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing about that is it actually came through an acting connection. I had a director in a, a sort of film, a film program for professionals that operates out of main media workshops. I now teach, that's one of the places I teach now, audiobooks and some voiceover, but I was an actor up there working with professional students, um, adults who were looking to branch out in their creative careers, or if they were cinematographers, for instance, like studying, you know, taking a week's worth of intensive, you know, 10 hour days, with, um, oh, I've forgotten his name, Russell, who, something, who, like, for instance, won the, isn't that terrible? I'm useless on this front. Like I said, not terribly in my business head. Um, Russell, um, who won, you can look him up online, he won the Oscar for Titanic cinematography. But I mean, that's the quality of educators that they've got coming in. And there was a student there, Kun Shang, um, shout out to Kuhn, uh, who was um, in a directing program and sort of an advanced directing class. And he, he asked me to be in his short film at the end of that week. And so we had an opportunity to work together and talk. And he had an idea for um, a sort of stage film project that we began working on. And then that kind of um, uh, sort of developed, but then kind of fell away. And it's, it's in a kind of holding pattern now. But all along, he was a creative director and director at um, Ubisoft up in Montreal. Is that right? Ubisoft up in I Montreal. So. I, I know the Ubi. And um, so he reached out to me. He said, I'm directing the Assassin's Creed. This, you know, and uh, he said, if you, you know, I'm going to I'm going to audition you on this and I'd love to use you if it's possible. The, the tricky thing was I was union, I'm union. I'm a SAG-AFTRA equity actor. And Ubisoft was um, doing mostly non-union stuff because they were based in Canada or they were using Canadian actors. They had you know, strict rules about that. So it took a little bit of finagling, but um, we were able to do it. And my piece I recorded via remote. So Kuhn was up in Montreal 
and I'm working out of Ubisoft Studios. And I was in a studio they hired, a professional studio in New York City. And he directed me um, for my piece, which was a self-enclosed bit. I was not interacting with any other characters. I was sort of this um, omnipresent voice of this corporation, um, kind of an insidious uh, a bit. So yeah, it, was, it was fun. And the Phoenix Project, yes, yeah. thank you. You're right up on it. So <laughs> yeah. that was, you know, and Kuhn had given me the entire backstory on that. So the only difference I would say that I noticed um, working in a video game um, versus the other voiceover work I do is that I was the coolest person on the planet to my 13-year-old nephews. Just like Thanksgiving, the, the holidays, Passover, Christmas, it was just like, oh, just, I had rupees suddenly. And I was like, well, this is, this is an interesting development. I'm with them. I understand. Okay, uh, so uh, okay, so, <laughs> okay, so uh, so you you know so you got into book narration. Uh, so when did when did you first attempt to uh, that particular uh, skill? And whose work did you first narrate? If you can remember, after 150 so audio books, I can. I can actually. Um, well, bless you. Thank, no, I, I because it was sort of it was sort of singular, um, and. Thank you. That's sweet of you to ask, too. Um, I came to it, I was doing, as I said, I was supporting myself um, with commercial work. So I had, I was doing a lot of commercial voiceover work. So um, I would say for about 15 years, I was, you know, I mean, it ebbed and flowed. I was, so I was doing the commercial um, voiceover work and some uh, television narrations, like there was, uh, you know, those documentaries for like Animal Planet. I did like a five-part series for Animal Planet. So that was very intensive um, script stuff and long hours in the booth. And I'd always been curious about audiobooks, but it didn't, they didn't pay much. They still don't in, a, in the relative scheme of the, the, the amount of work involved to produce an audiobook. Um, there's an awful lot that goes unseen in many hours. It is, you know, it's, it's a lot there. And uh, agents, my agents who were representing me, I think at the time were not particularly interested. And also audiobook was still sort of niche, you know, I mean, it was, was um, it, it was beginning to grow, but I think, that, you know, things were stomach still coming in cassettes. You went to a library, right. my husband would listen. When I started, started dating, I was like, he would bring these cassette packs into the car on long trips. And I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> because I just... Our, our, what we were listening to was not the same types of things. And um, it just wasn't, I didn't particularly want anyone interfering with my experience of the book. So when people tell me now, I don't, I don't like audiobooks, And I'm like, I get it. I get it. I actually only started listening because I was interested in, this was the one business, smart business decision I made. And then I fell into a world that I absolutely love. Brings me the greatest joy. This really does. But because I thought I need a little more control in my career. This I can begin to do on my own if I, if I work this properly. And so I began to sort of explore it and I, I branched out into it. And I would say my first record, oh, I've reached out in about 2015, I think it was on ACX. And um, I, got, I had two or three small books that I did for a royalty share. So I knew I wasn't going to bank money. In fact, I paid out. I paid out to rent a studio. I paid to have an engineer with me doing all the recording because I didn't know what I was doing. 
to keep an ear open for when I was making mistakes or tripping, to provide some gentle guidance if I'd strayed. But those are books that appear under um, a pseudonym, which I was reading under at the start because I was unsure of what I was doing. I also knew that probably given the nature of my voice and the way the market was, particularly at the time, that I might get a lot of offers for erotica or like books that sort of dipped into that. Again, not something that I usually read, but I felt like that's all right. I'm pro I, I can do that, but I want that under a pseudonym, most likely. Um, so those first two or three books, I don't quite remember. But then my big first paying offer, and it was a big paying offer from a very generous romance writer, Bethany Clare, and she hired me to take on her, her, her series, this Scottish Highlander time travel series, and it was a complete fluke that I submitted for it. I'm like, it, it was, I felt it was so out of my league, the price range that it was auditioning in. And, um, but I thought, you know, I could use the practice of auditioning. I liked the audition excerpt and I thought, great, this is my chance to play. And then there you go. And my second paying audition came from Lindsay Baroker. And that um, was for a series called Rust and Relics. And, or was, is, is, yeah, the series is Rust and Relics. I'm trying to remember the title of the first book, Torrent, I think. Um, yep. I'd, I'd have to, isn't it funny? I've done, so the, talk about the beginning of a beautiful relationship. As a matter of fact, I'm still narrating for both, seven years later, for both Bethany Clare and for Lindsay. But um, Lindsay has certainly been my most prolific working relationship and an absolute utter joy. As a matter of fact, I start today on book six of the of one of the two current series I'm narrating for her. Um, and, and, you know, it's just every time that I have a, a book from Lindsay, I'm just like, well, there we go. It's just going to be fun for the next two weeks in the booth. So. Yeah, I think I know which book you're talking about. And I'm, I'll be honest with you. I, say, I read the book first and then I listen to your audio book. And yeah, you're talking about the difference between uh, people who don't like audio books or like regular books. I like both. But with Lindsay's books, I when I'm listening to the audio books, I get you, your voices stuck in my head. So when I'm reading it, I read them in the voice that I'm used to listening to you with or whoever's narrating uh, at that time, like like Fred Berman for the uh, right. And uh if I hear something else, it just messes me up. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, that's so. Like I said, I'm, I'm a, I've, I read books, you know, just the actual physical books forever. But now, because of the job I do, where I'm walking around outside, I listen to audiobooks all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, which is exactly kind of where I got into Lindsay's book. Okay. So now, as you mentioned, you've worked with a a, a few writers that you've worked with numerous times, uh, like Anna Hackett, Robin James, Scott Barron. Uh, so is what draws you back to these particular authors? Is it the comfort of knowing their material or their comfort with you? Well, but in those cases, I think everyone you cited there um, is is someone is a is a is an independent yes, an independent author who has contacted me directly. So, you know, it's their call if they want to continue working with me or not. Um, I have been remark. I just I can't. I can't get over how fortunate I have been in the quality of the independent authors I've got. I also have been fortunate with the, some of the big publishers like um, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins. 
um, in Harper's various branches, um, Harlequin and things like that, like Lisa Unger. Um, I've read several of her books and um, I've got what I just had finished narrating one about a month and a half ago. Um, and um, there's another author that I read for frequently, Amber Garza. Um, and I'm always delighted when I get introduced but by to a new author through a publisher. And if I'm lucky, they want to continue working with me. And sometimes, you know, they're writing in a completely different world and in a much perhaps younger voice or with a male protagonist. And it just doesn't make sense to continue with me in that capacity. And then there have been one or two cases where I've gotten wind that a particular author may not want to work with me again. And that is fine. There are so many great narrators out there. And I, I can't do everything well. I don't do. I mean, there are things that I want to get better at, and I'm very interested in growing that way. But um, so I would say in answer to your question, there was a long way around to it. Um, it is it is a matter of both, really. It's that the author is comfortable with me first and foremost, because ultimately, often through even the ones working with publishers, certainly Lisa, um, and Amber, I think we're in a position to say to Harlequin or whoever's casting there, you know what, I think I want to go with someone else this time or whatever else. Um, but they've been they've been willing to continue working with me, which is wonderful. Um, same with Charlie Donnelly, um, who I've done some thrillers for. And um, the wonderful thing about that is you get a sense of their voice, you know, and even even it, it's like having a friend. And they can go off on a new path. They can take a new career. They can leave a marriage, go into another relationship, turn their life up, life upside down. But the essence of who they are, you can trust, you know. And so I know that these, like I said, so lucky. Every single one of the writers I've been working with has had such enormous humanity. And that humanity infuses their writing. And I can trust that they're not going to short shrift their characters they're going to be truthful to to their to their characters truth and that um they're not going to be cruel and so for me that's a really safe place so stuff can get really dark you know Lindsay's got some dark stuff particularly I remember you know but it, it feels like oh I can it's the best work you can get as an actor because you can trust that you're safe in it and you can go to places that you never get to touch but you know that it's going to be, it's not going to be twisted or dark or cause you to question your faith in humanity <laughs> at the end, you know? Right. See, that's probably, and that's probably one of the things I like about Lindsay's work, because I pretty much know, you know, even if it's a, in a seven or eight book series, in the end, it's going to come out okay. And I'm, I don't, you know, there's enough negativity going on now. I don't need that in my books. <laughs> so uh, yeah. that works out great. Okay, so during my research as I'm getting ready to talk to you, I noticed that you did a book by Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, so what was that experience like? And was there any intimidation in, you know, in, <laughs> uh, in reading a book yes. by Eleanor Roosevelt? <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes. Uh, that That is, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I will, I will say, and I actually had to, I was still fairly, I think it was only in my second year of narrating at that, except maybe, no, no, I wasn't. I was a little farther in but it was in my first year of actually working with big publishers. And that one came through a big publisher. And uh, I remember thinking, I'm not even sure how to approach this. 
Plus, I'll be honest, I found, um, I think, and if I could do it again, I still feel good about the book. I feel good about the book. I'm not not prou proud of it. Um, but I, if I came to it again, I think I would be able to find more lightness and more of the, maybe what I always sensed of Eleanor Roosevelt, which was like a, a, a humor in her. Um, I think I approached a little bit as if she was out there and a little bit too godlike. You know, I, I, in some ways I over honored the text and there's a danger in that, you know, you overcompensate and you get, you're not necessarily always as in the moment or in the relaxed truth of the character, but um, it was a lot of fun to read. And then there were moments where I did, I wasn't in my head about it and I could, it just flowed and I could feel it. And like the, the writing sat in me and you feel like maybe you're, you're, you're lucky enough to channel her for a little bit of time and then it goes away and you're trying to get that back, you know, so that, yes. But I've also had that with one or two authors whose work I've gotten, who, you know, I had like read and admired and then it, you know, um, I hadn't met them first through their, I mean, I hadn't met them as a narrator through their writing. I'd met them as a reader from maybe 10 years, five or 10 years before I was narrating. And there was an intimidation factor there as well, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, I say, well, it's not surprising. I said, because when I talked to Fred, uh, he said he did a book about Robin Williams, and he said that was intimidating uh, for him. Uh, so, uh, okay, so now, you know, we talked about, you know, like Lindsay, like I said, she does these books five to eight books long. Uh, and now, unlike a lot of writers, say like George R. R. Martin, who still can't finish the fifth book in the Game of Thrones, Lindsay pumps out books like nobody's business. Uh, but, you know, there, there'll be a few months space in between. How, how do you keep straight when you're doing a series of what that particular character sounded like uh, from book to book if there's a big gap in between? Well, um, I'll, I'll I'll mark in my sound files as I'm going. I'll drop um, uh, a marker and I'll label the character. And then often, if I were more efficient, um, I, I did, I've done it with a, a series that I'm doing with Anna Hackett right now. I have actually pulled sound clips because in that case I'm working with a fellow narrator it's my first dual narration and he records his sections I record mine but on some level even though we're never going to attempt to fully be you know the, we, we're trying to keep things in the realm of the ballparks you know so if my take on an older sort of shaman character is kind of wild and loony and his is very serious and dark it doesn't matter not only are our voices not matching we're we're off the character's truth so in those cases i've taken sound clips and held them but for the most part i'm often if i need a reference going back and chasing things down but that said characters from like the empire's edge and the last empire's edge i recorded um was i think about a year and a half ago i recorded about a year and a half ago i guess maybe it was a year ago i recorded the last two books primary books that really closed out the major arc i think there were one or two books after this with lindsay maybe on the fence about possibly bringing to audiobook not they're huge so it's an expensive proposition for her um but like characters like maldonado sicarius amaranth they live in me i i you know i have to watch that i don't bring them into other works too much although i don't it's, I can't really, because they are so distinct to me. So it's generally secondary characters who appear maybe like four books in, 
but then are suddenly carried through the rest of the series. Often I have to go back and check in with those unless they've gotten a very distinct sense. And then two, sometimes you have characters, you have a period of time that's passed. And particularly with a young character, you need to age them a bit. I've got a young dragon now um, in the current series. Right. And I've been conscious over the course of a book or two, both as his wisdom comes to him and as the stakes of the game are rising. And also the young male protagonist, Jack. I mean, he's a, he, was, he was a kind of young, not callow, but he was a, you know, he was, he was, he was a boyish he was a boy, he was a young, he was an adolescent coming into his adulthood. He really is quite into his manhood now, but he's still got all the, all those, that delightful character essence, you know? So for me, and because again, Lindsay writes so truthfully and she's so, you know, you could ask the same question of her. How does she keep, you know, and I'm sure you have that same truth of a character's story, you know, their heart truth through you know, a changing arc and changing experiences. And she is a master at that, you know. And if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Sometimes when I talk about how prolific she is, I feel like I almost had to add a caveat because I don't want people to think that she is just like pumping these things out. I don't know how to explain. She's just like a fountain. She's a geyser of creativity. And it's as if the first burst of geyserhood is as brilliant as the last gasp. I mean, there's, it's just, you know, it's bubbling all along and it never feels phoned in to me. Never, you know? Yes, and of course, you know, I love her work. Okay, so now, like I said, you, you read for different authors and, you know, and you may have elves, trolls, or different characters <laughs> in each of these different works. Do you, do you differentiate between, you know, how an elf might sound in one of Lindsay's works as opposed to somebody else? Or do you just kind of use a stock, okay, this is what a female elf or male elf sounds like? Or uh, how do you go about that? Uh, that's such a great question. Thank you, Martin. I love that question. Um, Yes, I've got I've got elves in in in, uh, in a few different books, and actually in two, three, several different of Lindsay's series. And my the tenor of Lindsay's storytelling differs. So again, Lindsay's a good example um, from book to book, and the worlds change. So, for instance, my take on the. Uh, but the elf who was a main character, not the protagonist, but a main character in um, the elven. Um, oh, my gosh. Um, I've gone up. I'm, I've got the titles. Um, Xenia and um, uh, Jax and uh, uh, sorry, that's I'm dragging. I can't believe I've gone up on the title right now. But that series, I'm going to look behind you and see if I've got it there. Yes. Something. Uh, something of truth behind you is, or, or I'm seeing in the image, that that series, that elf was very sort of buttoned down and he had a, he had a dark backstory, but even, I didn't know any of that. I didn't discover that until five books in along with the reader, but I could feel it. And the tenor of the storytelling 
was more serious than, for instance, Death Before Dragons, which right. is like, I remember when I got the first book and I was prepping it, reading, so I kind of read through, particularly a new series or a book from an, an author in a new world or a standalone. I, I really pay attention as I'm reading it. When I'm further along in a series, I'll scan it to get this idea of where the story's going and to pull out character names and things that I need pronunciations for. But mostly I want to just be in the ride of it. So I'll go um, having that sense. But when I'm starting a series, so Death Before Dragons with Val and um, uh, Zavrid Mokwithal, the dragon, um, I, I remember reading it and emailing Lindsay at some point where I burst out laughing because suddenly in the midst of werewolves, vampires, dragons, um, a variety of other creatures that, not griffins, but other creatures uh, coming as a mention of a Sasquatch. Suddenly there is a haunted house and I, I could not stop laughing. And I thought you have thrown in everything, including the kitchen sink, but it all had full commitment. It was so the world allowed for it all. So that knowing that that prep allows me to go, okay, this is a big world and it's got to be filled in a big way. So the elves are sort of more fanciful than the elves in the current series that I'm narrating for um, Lindsay, which are sort of partway between. They've got a lot of life in them, but they are seriously living in their world and, and have a lot of problems to resolve. Whereas in Death Before Dragons, they're part of Val's crazy world and they've, they've got some stability, but, and I have an idea of them and I think we all do hard to step away from Peter Jackson once you've got, you know, but Lindsay, Lindsay explores them in a different way. So that allows me to explore them in a different way and other authors have them present as different characters. Sometimes it can be quite mischievous or dark. So again, different quality. Okay, so so since you brought that up, so, so like as you're doing it, uh, do you have a lot of com communication between your author, so you can sort of get a feel? Okay, might you know, am I looking at this character and the way that you envisioned it? Of course, like I said, with Lindsay, you're probably as, as familiar with her as you can be, so you kind of already know where she's going. But say, like for a new book, do you have to communicate with the author to kind of get a feel for what what they're looking for? I like to. I like to because here's the thing. I want the, I want particularly with the indie, this, not, uh, not when you're working with the publishers, that is very rare. There's an intermediary, it's the producer at the publishing, the audiobook publishing branch arm of say, you know, HarperCollins or Macmillan. They're your contact. I have relationships now outside with like long running authors like Lisa Unger and Amber Garza. But it's my independent authors that um, I do want that relationship with. So that like, for instance, when Scott reached out to me, Scott Barron reached out to me um, and he actually, uh, he hadn't posted the audition on ACX, which is a site that Audible, it's under Audible's umbrella that sort of connects narrators and, and audiobook producers directly with independent authors. Scott reached out to me um, I hadn't been auditioning in a while on the site. And he said, I'd like you, if you'd be willing to give this a sample. And he very distinctly wanted to know how, was, how I would approach two particular characters. He had, a, he had a sense of how he wanted to hear them. He gave me some gentle guidance, which is the best possible thing. Too much, you know, it's funny. I once heard that adults um, 
are capable of really sort of learning only three new things in a day and more like one, really yeah, more, yeah, like more like one, like you one. know? <laughs> But, but the most you can ever throw with them is three, because then after that, everything gets lost. They're not going to retain anything. And that is absolutely true for me. So it's great to have some sort of specific world setting. So a, a general idea, and maybe a, a sense of the tone, like Anna Hackett has said to me when I started a new series for her, I, I, I think this one, I, I want to bring a lighter tone to this one. Well, that already gives me that already puts me in a place. I'm like, great. Okay, so I come at this with less emotional investment. Doesn't mean there won't be that, but it, it doesn't need to be fraught. And uh, fraught sounds wrong, but the, the stakes are different. So the stake setting is a great thing to get from an author up front. And if they do have an idea, like for instance, Death Before Dragons series, when we started it, and I knew Lindsay well then, I said, and she's generally very hands-off. Um, she's she's just like, even with the pronunciation, she'll, she uh, has a bit of a sense of humor as to the sort of twisted names she will make up for our pronunciations for her narrators. Um, you know, she, she said, I have an image of, this is sort of who's in my mind's eye. And she took an actor who played a, a character in a short story arc in the original Star Trek. And I wish I could remember it, but like this very handsome, haughty, dark haired thing. And I'm like, OK, I cannot get his voice, but I think I can get the quality. And Lindsay knows that. She's, and so that's the type of feedback that's really helpful. And then, at least certainly for a new series, I always submit we are asked to on ACX, you're not asked to, you're required to submit the first 15 minutes. And generally, it's the first 15 minutes of the book, but I'll often say to a new author, particularly, um, are there any particular characters or sections you want to hear? And, you know, I'm happy to do 20 to 25 minutes if it's specific and the sections are clear about what you need. And then I'll give them that. And then they can provide feedback. Because after that point, really, it's in my hands and it's in the hands of the narrators. Um, it, it becomes an impossibility to work if you're submitting chapters for review as you go because it Frankensteins things. And I know from experience having Frankensteined auditions, it always sounds worse. The point of audiobooks uh, to me and, and stage is that it's a living thing that's happening. I mean, film and television, you've got a lot of editing that can happen. Audiobooks, there's some. But mostly you want to be on the thread and the heart of that story. And if you're constantly stopping and like, did that sound right? Or did I get that slightly? Was I fully? I have to get out of that editing head as I'm going. And I need to. And if I'm worrying about, oh, when I upload this chapter, are they going to say, I don't like the way this line was delivered? Some of it's not going to hit. But the but there's something that happened. Excuse me. Sorry about that. I get so excited about this. There was something that happened to me. It was one of the purest experiences I had of this when I narrated a very long book um, for recorded books. It was um, uh, uh, Weber, um, David Weber's um, Paths of Glory. Is that is that the title? I should go back and look. But it was a it was a it was like a thirty hour, like five books, thirty hours, and. Uh, there was a battle scene partway through the book and I felt, you know, at points like I was in and out of it. And then suddenly I was in it and my, my emotional life and the writing were on a ride that I actually got 
choked up, but I managed to bring it back in as I was going. And I've had that happen numerous times as I was writing, but I hadn't expected it in a battle scene. And that battle scenes are things that, for instance, partly as a woman, partly as a woman who came to narrating and telling stories with those types of actions in them, um, because I was not a big sci-fi reader or fantasy reader growing up. I've fallen into the world now and love it and listen and read on my own. Dystopic thrillers were about the closest I came to. I write, read, I, I love that stuff. Um, but um, that that's the type of thing that if you're worried in the back of your mind about getting, you know, is the author going to love this? Or are they going to come back and say, you're out of it. You're out of the storytelling. You're out of the character's truth of it. And Hopefully you're creating room for surprises to happen. Just like, you know, Lindsay will talk about and other great writers will talk about how the story was going one way, they're in it and they're writing. And then suddenly whoop, something happens. Lindsay says, oh, and a portal opens. Wow, why did that portal open? Now what do I do? But you go down that path and maybe it doesn't work out, but you go, you have to follow it because something else larger than you is happening in the storytelling. So long answer, Martin. How long did you say these usually run? Uh, well, did you block uh, out two hours? Uh, yeah, I, bl I block out time because especially in this kind of situation, <laughs> I know I'm going to just palaver. So it's that's great. Okay, so so you know, so you're doing your narration work, and you decide to go ahead and set up your own studio for this. Uh, how did you decide that it was time for you to do that? And did uh, did anyone help you as far as deciding what you know? What kind of microphone, what kind of software, what you was going to need to do it? Yes, thank you. Um, it came at about the point that um, I still was not working full time as a narrator. I was holding down other uh, freelance writing work. Um, uh, I was doing communications and working with some nonprofits that way. Um, so I was holding on to that, but I realized it was expensive to rent a studio and to hire an engineer, which I do for all my independent projects. When I work for the publishing houses, I just record. I do some basic editing and start, stop and start as I go. Like if I trip over a word or realized I missed a section, I've, of course I will stop and I'll pick that up and then continue on with the story. But then I send that off to them and I hire, um, I work mostly with um, Tidef Studio in Atlanta and I love them. So I'm based in New York, this is all remote. I pack up my audio files, ship it to them. They do the stuff, the great stuff, edit me, send back sections that need to be re-recorded. For instance, when I trans when the word is stare on the page, but I say step or couch and I say sofa because the brain does that sort of thing, or I've missed a line or it's fuzzy that something has garbled or there's been a, a, an ambulance. Even with my current setup now, I had helicopter interference when there was a police action happening at one point. Even my triple walled professional booth is not fully soundproof. And there was a <sighs> under my files and you could see this thick black line passing <laughs> under it. So that section needed to be redone as I thought it would, but I thought maybe I can get away with it. But when I would say it was probably in my first year, it was after I started working with both Bethany, Claire and Lindsay. And I knew I was probably on the second books in with both of them. And I thought, this is working. I've got relationships here. And I thought, I've got to make this easier on myself than hiking all the way out to Brooklyn, an hour and a half on the subway, paying a small fortune to do that. 
Um, I mean, literally half of my, my payment was going out the door. Now it's like more like um, a quarter of what, and my rates are, have, you know, risen over time too, both to changes in the environment and, and my experience and things like that. So um, my husband lost his closet for a, for a number of years here. And I basically just, it was not soundproof, but it was in a great section. I was lucky. We don't have anybody upstairs from us. We're on the top floor. Um, the neighborhood can get sort of loud, but it isn't terrible. And um, I had his closet was against an outside wall of the building set back from the street. So I couldn't have asked for better until the pandemic happened. So I was safely recording from there. It only just got very hot in the summertime, but narrators are always negotiating that, um, particularly when we're recording from home. And sometimes even when we're recording in professional studios, it collects, you can't have an air conditioner running. So um, the pandemic happened and work boomed after the first like two to three weeks of shock, you know, of everybody just going, what's happening and nobody doing anything. I still had work for Lindsay. So I was just continuing to record that as I had been. But um, suddenly I had new clients reaching out to me, the uh, uh, more of the publishers and smaller publishing houses. Um, and what happened here was of course, school closed down. And so there were children in the courtyard. There's a window right here. My husband's closet was right there. Um, there was a, there, and they, there was a gym set downstairs and so and there's like there, this area back here is, a, is an enclosed area there's um, a courtyard with buildings surrounding it so it's just a funnel of sound and children screaming because of course they were losing their minds you know they're little kids they're trapped inside they're out there screaming and their parents you know are like I'm done go out there um for you know it, it was going on from like eight in the morning to 10 or 11 p.m. as the older kids were out there and I'd be recording and I'd be in an emotional scene and this and I would hear it over my headphones and I would see the spike in my sound file I hear <laughs> like that and it was just coming over and I, you lose your mind I have a friend who's dealing with it now a wonderful narrator who's got a building construction site happening next door I mean these are the things you have to try and adapt or you figure out other ways um so I was able to um, decamp up to my parents' old house, the shack up in Massachusetts. And my husband kind of built me a space there in August. That again, was not soundproof. And we talked about what it would be to invest in a professional booth and where we would put it in the New York apartment. Because, so we were sort of living apart for almost a year, which was great for my work in the sense that I was working constantly 14 hour days, seven days a week, because I think my grief about everything that was happening in the world, just, it, you know, it was able to be imploded by having something to do and be able to immerse myself, as you said, in stories that lifted me in every possible way that lifted me and tapped into my own sense of creativity when I could get into them. But um, it was isolating. And so I finally invested in a booth, but that took six months to get here because of shortages and pandemic delays and things like that so finally last november it went up and we lost the we have a we had a small second room in the apartment that was an office it is no more but the upside is my husband's got his closet back so yay yeah <laughs> see, see it's funny you said that because actually the room that i do this in is a four by four 
room that the previous owner had their sewing room in. So, I mean, there's that little background of my books thing. That's just all uh, fake. Uh, I wouldn't that's show you what that is. <laughs> I wouldn't show you what this thing actually looks like, but, <laughs> uh, but this, but uh, uh, so I understand that. Okay. So I mentioned in the opening that you, you know, you're offering some classes in voiceover and uh, narration. What inspired you to share your uh, knowledge and gifts with students? And what do you hope the students get out of it? Um, it was, it, it, it was more at the time that um, I, I, I just thought that for people who were curious and particularly um, authors, and I often feel that too, just the, the art and what we learn about storytelling is so useful in other areas of our lives. It doesn't have to be audiobook narration. Um, basically, it was because I wanted to continue my relationship with main media workshops and I was still going up there as an actor and um, even had an opportunity this summer, but just couldn't do it. Um, but I wanted, I love this work and it has filled me with such joy and people began to reach out and ask. They were like, how do I do this? How do I do it from home? And I'm like, well, listen, I don't know the first thing about the equipment I use. And yes, I received, Martin, I received so much guidance and assistance it's from, um, I mean, I paid people in instances to help me set up um, how to work with an audio interface. That was a very good level one. And I still use what I record on the the, uh, um, the audio software Reaper, which I record on. I use it like I use my iPhone, which is like 3% of what it can do. And the rest of it is like out there. And I'm like, well, God bless you. Um, I, but I get what I'm able to do done easily. And I can do some basic troubleshooting now. I understand, hopefully over seven years of doing this, you evolved to that point. Um, so I can do that. And I recognize like, if there's a problem with the file, I don't automatically melt down and panic. I'm like, all right, let me, let me see if I can look at this. And that's what I feel I can tell people about this work, like how you can do a basic setup, like as you've done. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that you sound great. Your space looks beautiful with the books there. I appreciate my titles, my narration titles on the wall. Thank you. Which I'm, I'm trying to read. Like, what did I narrate there? Um, so uh, it's and but what what I think what I like about the teaching is it's a gift to me because as I said I find this so joyful and I love I love talking with people and this is the one one of the few areas in audiobooks where you're outside of the booth and connecting with others. So um, I don't know how much help I am to anyone, but if they have fun and you know, one or two, I shouldn't say that, several have actually got titles up and are, are working as narrators now. Um, so, you know, but I, they would have found their way, I believe that. It's not that I did that, but maybe, you know, if I can provide some information that helps on the way, um, that's joyful to me, joyful. That's, that's it. And, and it could be just as simple as, okay, so uh, Vivian's doing this and in having fun doing it. So maybe it's something that I can do. So, I mean, if it, if it gives them that. Okay, guess what? We're, we're done. <laughs> but, we are. We are, but uh, so uh, I want to thank you for sharing a bit of your time. But before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to promote any upcoming projects that you might have that you can talk about. And where can our followers go to follow you on either social media or the web? Uh, thank you very much. I am well, as I mentioned, I am starting today on um, the sixth and final book in Lindsay's current epic series, um, Dragon Gate. And Yay! Um, oh, sorry. It's, I, I know, <laughs> yes, no, I'm, I'm excited too, although I'm bittersweet, you know, because it's like, I always feel like, oh, I'm saying goodbye to these characters. And 
so, so there's some trepidation going in. Plus, I don't know what Lindsay's. Well, I do sort of know because I scanned this, but I, you know, the sense of what, how, how those arcs are going to feel in me. I know where things go, but I, 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 it may land in me when I, when I begin doing, when I'm in it, when I'm in their lives. Um, so that aspect, I'm always excited about. So there's that. I've got a new. I've got a title that I'm beginning after that. Um, for Podium Publishing. And actually, Podium does a lot of Lindsay's books, too. The Fred right. narrates and Kate Redding and Emily Luzeller. Yep. I mean, she's had fantastic narrators through Podium. And I've narrated um, uh, something, but I've got a book coming up called Grand Design for Podium, um, which is a large epic um, series that actually started as a, not a fanfic. I don't I don't know the, the online platforms well enough, but it started as on a free platform for sci-fi readers and these chapters were posted by the author and you know the storyline exploded and took off and now it's being published and you know it's getting an audiobook and what i've read of it so far and there is a there is a talking dog protagonist which to me is like hello <laughs> i fell into it <laughs> so i'm very excited about that and i've got amber garza's newest book coming up, which I'll begin recording probably right after I finish Lindsay's um, Dragon Gate. And then I've got more of, of Lindsay in the Elf series coming up. So, you know, Lindsay's been very, very loyal. And I always, you know, I, 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 I hope she's always writing and I hope she'll always throw a bone my way because um, I've been lucky that way. But same with Anna and same with Anna Hackett and Bethany Clare. I've just been, and Lisa Unger, I've just been really blessed that way so excellent well you know uh, i'll be following you because uh, uh wherever lindsay goes i go uh yep. so uh, i appreciate that and uh hopefully maybe when you're getting ready to record your 200 book or so we'll be able to get to connect again <laughs> i would love to i loved your questions martin i love your enthusiasm and i i was listening to to what you know because i was curious what you had up and i i you know it's a really vivid and great world and the interest that you bring to it and that the people obviously coming onto your site do is, is it's just so new to me and thrilling. I love it. I love it. So thank you for introducing me well, I, to I what you're doing. I appreciate that. That's what happens though when you get over 60 years old. I'm so, uh, we, but, I, uh, <laughs> but uh, again, I you think- You wear it well, my friend. Oh, well, bless your heart. Your check's in the mail. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again real soon, we hope. Take care, Martin. Have a great uh, rest of the week, and thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to GBN's Talking Books. Talking Books is a production of Geek Vibes Nation. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious 
extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.